0: everybody. This is John Norris, your host of Trading Perspectives. And as always, we have our co-host, Sam Clement. Sam, say hello. Hey, John. Sam, you know, we were talking earlier, and obviously with the volatility in the markets here over the last couple of weeks, really the entire month, of maybe even September, you can make that argument. And we figured that a lot of people are probably, probably wondering, just what in the world's going on here? Are we standing at the precipice of another sort of global meltdown like 2008? And, I, yeah, you know, I'd
1: say I've been getting that question more often than anything well, else. I mean, me.
0: I have too. And, you know, we've written some stuff, some, put some stuff out there, trying to put some people's minds at ease, but yet, you know, one day we're up a couple hundred. Points next day we're down a couple hundred points. You've seen what's happened with some companies like IBM, just completely missing numbers. Then I mean, no matter where you look, you can find any number, any number of bricks in the in the proverbial wall of worry. Of course, everyone's talked about midterm elections. Sure, people are worried about that. People are worried about higher interest rates, China worried about china you know all the trade war stuff uh then Jerome powell's coming out talking about how the fed's going to do what they're going to do regardless of what the president has to say and draghi comes out it's just listen there's no shortage of things with which to worry if you are someone who is prone to
1: worrying sam your thoughts on that you know i'd even add saudi arabia into that now you think so Yeah, a little bit maybe with the oil market man that whole thing is so bizarre it is bizarre you know that
0: is absolutely bizarre, and, and I, that's one of the ones where I would I would not personally put that in. Um, I would not put that brick in my wall of worry, and I will make no secret of it. My biggest concern for the U.S. economy uh, and the global markets, to a lesser degree, but certainly for the U.S. economy, has nothing to do with midterm elections, and we can touch on that in a second. And really has nothing to do with. Well, I mean, I mean, really, even trade barriers is as crazy as that sounds. Sure. My biggest concern has been and will continue to be just how aggressive the Federal Reserve is going
1: to be in tightening credit sam what how about you what what are you most worried? I'd agree with that i mean when you in terms of trade war, you know we've talked about it I, you just aren't really seeing much of an effect from it so far much well, of an i mean certain areas you obviously are, but As far as the global economy, as far as the U.S. economy, it hasn't really been much of a slowdown from it, if at all.
0: And some people who are more worried about that would counter with, you know, it's been too early. Uh, you know, if perhaps, perhaps I mean it's out there, it's coming. It's kind of like you know when the dam breaks. It takes a little while for the sure. for the floodwaters to get sure. to you. But even so, and you can call me cavalier, you can call me maybe way too much, way too much of an optimist. Perhaps I'm whistling past the graveyard. Throw whatever cliche that you want at it. I just have a hard time believing that the powers that be in both Washington and Beijing would knowingly run the global economy into the dirt, a la 2008. Just because neither one of them wanted to back down in this political, you
1: know, spat. I mean, it's obviously not a good thing. We don't want this trade war to go into years, decades, this to be the new norm. But I think we're on the same page that this isn't really the... Leading issue for any kind of pullback.
0: To me, to me it's not. People would argue with uh, with me or argue with you because I think we're the same mindset there. Uh, and stranger things have happened. I, I think it's fair to say that uh, the current uh, inhabitant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue has a high opinion of himself and would probably be loath to back down from a fight such as this. And I would say uh, Xi in China is probably loath to back down from a fight. But as someone told me uh, some time ago, I mean, it wasn't some time ago, it was last week, a friend of mine called me up and said, what's different about this is the Chinese are playing for 50 years. Whereas Trump's used to negotiation negotiating over a short
1: period right. of time. Right, with midterms coming up and then him up for re-election in two more years. Xi's a little different in that aspect. Xi's a
0: little different. So, you know, this is what we'll say about trade wars. Then we'll talk about the Fed. And then we'll just kind of throw it out there and just maybe have some stream of conscience talking about it. some of the things could, that could happen but probably won't. I'll say this about this. I think it's going to be horribly strange and very much not to the Donald's liking in the fact that Xi is playing for 50 years. The Chinese are playing for 50 years. Trump has always played for a very short, um, no, certainly not playing for 50 years on in most in most negotiations. Right. That I think the White House will eventually or Washington will cave in more than it would like sooner than it would like, and it's not going to get exactly what the, what they would like out of the Chinese. You
1: know, I'd say they both would. I would say
0: they both would, but I I I. I, I, I I don't believe Washington, and particularly the administration, is going to be able to declare victory kind of the same way and to the same degree as it did with the Mexicans coming to the negotiation table and the Canadians as well. Say that's fair. Okay, that's fair. So not trading perspectives, but sharing ideas. Right. Sh- actually sharing saw, opinions,
1: I think. I saw a poll on CNBC recently, and they just polled people what they were most concerned about with the pullback or yeah. what they thought was the biggest reason. And what they have it. to say. It was about... 40, 40, I believe, 40%, 40% on Fed raising rates and trade war, and then the rest was midterm election.
0: Okay, well, I mean, I So
1: still, I mean, people were thinking it was all three of them, but a little more skewed to the first two. You know,
0: everyone knows, I mean, if you consume any sort of business information, you'll look at the markets at all, Everyone knows the Fed has been raising the overnight lending target for some time now. Right, Taking it from zero to 25 basis points target all the way up to an hour, two and a quarter. Uh, probably got another, at least two rate hikes in there. Um, you know, One in December is kind of already built in or cooked into the books. Uh, and then the markets are predicting another one in the first quarter. And then after that, kind of all bets are off. But as I've said here, I, th- I believe if I haven't said it here, I've said it elsewhere. If you were to get a couple of uh, drinks into uh, Chairman Powell, uh, maybe some fireball, I think. Some, uh, someone of your age, of your generation, might might be up to the fireball or something like
1: that. Jerome
0: might be, too. Yeah, you, know, you, have, you have no you clue. Never I'm, I doubt it. I would imagine he'd be more of a dram type of, type of individual, but get a couple shots of fireball in him, and he'd probably set, tell you something on the lines of, we're not really paying much attention to the dots and what have you. What we're paying attention to or what we'd like to do is get the overnight lending target to 3% and then
1: leave it for a while. Right. However, well, Will yeah. you explain that a little more to other people that might not really get what you mean by that? And that is the end of Training Perspectives today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> so so what, We always uh, we throw around the term neutral for yeah. 3%. Neutral to what? Yeah. Neutral to
0: long-term inflationary expectations. Right now, if you were to take a look at this spread, this is where, Sam, this is a nerdy podcast. Now, I'm here for it. I, I love having you on step, but I, I just gotta let you know the, what you got yourself into here. We do a lot of nerdy stuff here. But right now, the spread between on-the-run Treasuries and the equivalent Treasury Inflation Protected Security, otherwise known as a TIP, is around 2.1% for 5, 10,
1: and 30 years. So basically the ones that are infe- affected by inflation versus the ones that aren't
0: That's right. By and inflation. that spread, you can reasonably intuit, is the market's expectations for inflation over those time frames. So they're all about 2.1, 2.2%. So to get to the uh, to get the overnight lending target to 3%, all of a sudden that means that money's no longer free. Catch my drift?
1: Yeah, I think we got through that without getting too nerdy. <laughs> pretty simple. Dude, that is very nerdy stuff. <laughs>
0: When I was sitting around the
1: okay, it could have been worse. Yeah. Could, that could have been a lot worse.
0: When I was sitting around the fraternity house patio, when you were sitting around your talking fraternity house. Tips, yeah, tips. we're not talking about Ted's Fred. We're not talking about raising the ROI lending target. But in any event, that is what it is. But people are concerned, uh, and you know, understandably
1: so. That sure. The, that I mean, f- people, people are losing money. It's real money. Yeah, it's real money. Um,
0: but that, that perhaps the Fed is going to be more aggressive than even that 3% going out there and squashing an inflation target of 2.1%, which I think most people would say isn't all that overwhelming, right. 2.1%. No. And then what's not getting a lot of press or a lot of talk, in my opinion, is the fact that they're draining some of that quantitative easing, $30, 40000000000 billion a month, on the back end of the curve. Definitely. So You don't you, hear that at all. We don't really hear that terribly you much hear at all. tightening. Well, you hear the tightening and what have you, but that's real money being drained out of the system. Yeah,
1: a lot of real money.
0: It's a, well, it's, it is and did isn't. If you think, take a look at the overall size of M2, it's not that much, but it's, it's a constant drip, 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 drip. At some point, that bucket fills up if you catch my drift. Right. And so you combine draining the quantitative easing. <laughs> it's going to take them a month of Sundays to drain them at the current rate, but it is money coming out. Couple that with the increase in the overnight lending target, and you have a Fed that's being a lot more aggressive than maybe the headlines would suggest that they're being. Yeah. All to combat, for all intents and purposes, an inflation target that the market that the markets are telling us right now they expect to be around two point one to two point two percent again over almost all time frames. So that's what I'm concerned about. That perhaps the powers that be on the Federal Open Market Committee, which is the committee at the Fed that actually does decide the overnight lending target, other monetary policy uh, levers, that they are sitting there looking at something that the rest of the markets just really aren't seeing. Now, granted, these people are very bright, but I would tell you a 2.1% inflation target is not one that we need to be overly aggressive and in, in, in throttling. No. I'm of a certain age that while I was not doing business at this time. I do remember the Carter administration, the early 80s when inflation was in the double digits. Uh, I was a younger person then, obviously, obviously but I remember that. So when I, when I make this, when I ask this question at a presentations, I like, go, who here thinks two to 3% is inflationary? You know, virtually no one in the room raises I mean, their hand. I
1: mean, that's around the Fed's dual mandate.
0: Without a doubt. So, it's kind of one of those things that how aggressive is the Fed going to be in squashing an inflation bogey that is roughly at its mandate? That's what gets me concerned. And I'm not here, I'm not one of these people who say abolish the Fed or what have you, but what concerns me about this is that on the Fed, you know, the Fed is you know the world's primary central bank. Got a lot of brilliant people on there, a lot of Wonderful academic uh, economist on there, you know. For a central bank, it doesn't have a single banker on it. It's
1: funny, isn't it?
0: Isn't that kind of funny? So you would, I, I would have at least think it would be a good idea to have at least one person that's under underwritten a credit on the on, on the Federal Open Market Committee. So I worry that the people here that have, you know, they're they're brilliant people. They're sitting here looking at a lot of numbers, uh, doing a lot of math, doing a lot of hard work, taking a look at things, and but <clears throat> never having made a loan. And this is important. They technically really don't have any real skin in the game. Right. So they are making massive decisions with absolutely no downside to, to their personal decisions. That's what concerns me about whether or not the Fed is going to be too aggressive in raising the overnight landing target. I personally don't think that they will be. I think that they are hopefully smart. Hopefully, they will see when the uh, if the yield curve starts to invert, and that's where we can go down that nerd path again. Uh, hopefully, they will say, "Okay, we're not going to do this this time." They'll go, "We're going to stop,
1: take a breather." Well, that's what I was going to go to next is the inversion of the yield curve, where short-term rates are getting longer than long-term rates. So it's hard to borrow. It's hard to lend money at, uh, when you're. Uh, <laughs> hey, you can lend money all day
0: long. You can just lose money on, right. money on your right. money. And for those that are, you know, aren't familiar with what we're talking about in, you know, inverting the yield curve, banks borrow money from individuals, depositors. Right. Your, de- your deposit is actually a liability on a bank's balance sheet. We have to pay you money to get your money to be, you know, open up a deposit account. So we pay you money, and we take your money, and we turn around and lend it out to other people. So if we've got to pay you more as depositors to attract your money— and we can't lend out at his, at, at favorable terms, we're going to make fewer loans. That just makes sense. Right. That's just business. And if we're making fewer loans, not just Oakworth Capital Bank, but the entire banking system. Yeah, it's just how banking works. It's yeah. just how banking works. If we're making fewer loans, then the system creates less money. And if the system is creating less money, intuitively, economic growth slows down.
1: Right. But I've seen some of the some of the people on the board, the Federal Reserve, uh-huh. say they don't think inversion of the yield curve is really something to worry about. And that just kind of boggles my mind.
0: It is and it didn't. I mean, I think an inverted yield curve predicted 10 of the last five recessions or something like that. A short-term inversion does not necessarily mean we're heading down for economic rack and ruin. However, all economic recessions have had one thing in common. Right. The old group does invert at some point.
1: So to say it's not something to worry about seems a a little strong of an opinion. For
0: Well, I I think in fairness to them, and here I am, I'm I'm bashing them and defending them on the the flip side. It's not something that you should worry about to the exclusion of other things going on. You don't need to sit there with blinders on, kind of wild-eyed and, you know, I use the term being a Bolshevik at times. People shouldn't get that bent out of shape about it. But the the, the math math isn't what the math is. Banking is what the banking is. You invert the yield curve, there's going to be a slowdown in the creation of money, period. End of discussion. So to not worry about it all or have the people on the Fed tell us to not worry about it all is foolish. But we also can't sit around and think, oh, my gosh, this is going to be 2008 again. That's fair. So that is – for me, that's the biggest brick in this proverbial wall of worry. So in terms of this, this month, taking a look at certain things, people are worried about a lot of different things. And it's just time for a little sort of gush. I mean, we've been telling our clients since the beginning of the year, we're going to have some volatility. And we have had more volatility right. this year. Uh, and we've had a lot more volatility. But I certainly think that once this is over with, midterm elections, and I've done Monte Carlo simulations in my brain trying to figure out the, the likely outcome for this. And at the end of the day, October is historically a bad month.
1: Yeah. A lot of
0: se- a lot of seasonal factors in play here. We just happen to have pronounced seasonal factors this year. It doesn't mean every October is lousy, but <laughs> compared to a lot of other months, October is historically one of the worst months, if not the worst months for the stock market. Right. And November and December are historically extremely good months for the mm-hmm. stock market. So, which takes us to obviously coming up the first week in November thereabouts, we have the midterm elections. Right. So this we're going to talk a little bit about politics. After we finish the politics, we're going to talk a little bit about religion. You think?
1: Sure. sure,
0: Make sure that we alienate everyone. I'm with you. (laughs) So, so Sam, I know how I feel about the midterm elections. I want to hear a younger person's view about why the midterm elections either should be or should not be a big brick in the wall of work.
1: You know, I think younger people in general are, I'd hate to overgeneralize, but I think people are putting too much emphasis on the midterm elections, as far as the economy goes.
0: I think you're probably right. And you and I have talked about this. Um, Even if the opposition party, the Democrats, were to win majority in both houses,
1: of the Which Congress. is, right now, very unlikely.
0: Um, it's, I mean, un- it's more so in the House, but in you know, the Senate,
1: they're going to have to really run the table. I mean, certainly
0: like. after 2016, it's hard to believe polls ever again. I, but but it seems as though, and tipi- this is typical of a midterm cycle, midterm election, the opposition party typically does pick up seats. Right, every time so,
1: during Obama's yeah. administration. So it's,
0: it's very, be, I think it would be... Certainly going against the grain for the Democrats to not pick up seats in the the House and the Senate, and in the Senate, the Republicans have fewer seats to give up. So it should be, but let's say even if the Democrats were to win both houses of the Congress, they would not have the necessary two-thirds majority, a supermajority, in order to override a presidential veto. So a majority is fine, but they won't have enough to override a presidential veto without a lot of Republicans jumping ship. So a little stalemate. So we're looking at stalemate. We're looking at stalemate if that were to happen, and then if the Republicans were to retain the, both houses of the Congress, maybe we'll get some reform or something like that. But virtually no one's thinking that that is a slam dunk. What happens if the Democrats win one and and the Republicans keep the other? Stalemate again. So we have a couple of different scenarios. We have three different. And out of those three scenarios, two of them result in stalemate. So you start throwing some stats at it, probabilities and what have you, midterm elections, probably going to mean, we're going to have some stalemate in Washington for the next two years. And I don't know how, how you view the world, Sam. That's not that bad a thing. I think there could be worse things. Much worse things than that. So that so that brick in the wall worry is not that
1: big a concern to me either. One last little thing. You know, we're starting to get into fourth quarter and fourth quarter yeah. means coming out. Yeah. What do you think about that? We've had some really good ones come out out so far, and we've had had some real bad ones come out so far. But in general, at least I think, I'm expecting a pretty strong earnings season.
0: The earnings are pretty good, but it's kind of interesting to see some of the ones that have missed and missed pretty badly. Um, For for
1: different reasons, a lot of them. For different reasons.
0: You know, initially, it it looks like earnings are fine. It'll be interesting to see when it's all said and done, whether or not they're still growing at the same rate, and I'd be surprised if they are. But it doesn't mean that earnings are going to fall apart. It doesn't mean economic growth is going to fall apart. We're still on pace to have a very decent year. But, Sam, as you and I have talked about, and I've talked about it with the rest of the investment committee, and in a tip of the cap to the baseball playoffs, I would say that we're in the bottom half of the seventh inning in terms of this economic cycle. Sam, I know you're uh, you're far more of an optimistic individual than I am.
1: I like to think sixth. Maybe top of the seven.
0: No, I mean, you've, you've recently changed your opinion. You, you told me the last time we used baseball analogies like this that you were in the bottom half of the six, which is okay. If you're not an optimist when you're 22, 22, 23 years of age, something's, something's wrong. wrong. And if you're not a pessimist when you're my age, well, in that event. So we'll just say that we're in the top half of the
1: 7th inning. See, that's it. It's fair. I think
0: that's sure. fair. And while those are the latter innings, I'm going to throw a stat at you, Sam, that you probably would not know. That does not mean that there's not a lot of game left because between 8 and 9% of all games, Major League Baseball games, end up going into extra innings. I didn't know that. There you have it. There you have it. Longest game ever played, 26 innings. So just because we're in the latter innings of the economic cycle doesn't mean that we aren't going to be playing the game for a little while longer yet. So that's what I want everyone to get out of this. This edition of Trading Perspectives is, yeah, there's a lot to worry about. We can sit around our whole entire lives worrying about stuff. But when you take take a look at all the individual bricks and our proverbial wall of worry, the one that kind of sticks out for me, and I think, Sam, you too, is just how aggressive U.S. monetary policy is going to be. And that's the biggest question mark. Are we trading perspectives or are we sharing a well, I think,
1: again, we're sharing perspectives. Ah, uh, we got to figure something else out.
0: We'll figure something out. We'll figure something else out. Well, gang, we're running a little bit long here today. We're very close to running long here today. But thank you so much for listening. We love to hear from our listeners. So if you have any questions or comments, please let us know. You can always send us an email to tradingperspectives at Capital.com. Or you can leave us a review on the podcast outlet of your choice. As always, please refer us. Recommend us to your friends, neighbors, and loved ones. That is, if you like what you hear. If you don't like what you hear, by all means, tell uh, rec- recommend to, recommend us to people that you don't like, and even just recommend us. And you always kind of grin whenever I say that. I think that's very funny. <laughs> if you're interested in hearing more of what we have to say, you can always go to our website, OakworthCapital.com, and go to the Thought Leadership tab. Scroll on down, take a look at all the good stuff we have there. So that's it for today, Sam.
1: I'll see you next week.
0: Y'all take care.